Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hi and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio and today is Tuesday, August the 22nd, 2023. And Dr. Tim is uh, off the rest of this week and so hold space for him and fast healing. And he asked me to play um, an interview that he did with Laura McGowan in April of this year. And Laura is the author of several books. Uh, one of them is called Push Off From Here, We Are the Luckiest. There's um, several, and she's uh, a speaker, and she seems like she is an awesome person, awesome person, (laughs) and uh, so we're going to play her recording, and I hope you enjoy. Michael and I will be live during the second hour. Laura McGowan had a long and successful career in public relations and the madman-esque drinking culture of advertising. After getting sober, she quickly became recognized as a fresh voice in recovery. Beloved for her soulful and irreverent writing online and in print, she now leads sold-out retreats and courses, teaching people how to say yes to a bigger life. She lives outside Boston, Massachusetts with her daughter. Laura writes an award-winning blog and hosted the iTunes Top 100 Home podcast. She has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, WebMD, Psychology Today, The Today Show, The Doctors, and more. Laura has an MBA from Babson College and spent 15 years in advertising, managing million-dollar accounts for Fortune 100 companies before transitioning to writing and teaching. She's the founder of several online programs for sobriety and personal development the Luckiest Club, a sobriety support community, and she teaches workshops and retreats all over the U.S. Her first book, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, released January of 2020 and was an instant bestseller. Her most recent book is titled Push Off From Here, Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. It's great to see you, Laura. Thanks for joining me again. I'm thrilled with um, having been through both reading and listening to your, your new book, Thank you. um, Push Off From Here. And I'm thrilled to have a discussion with you about the two books and uh, what brought you into them and where where they've launched you. Sure. So the first my first book, We Are the Luckiest, 
uh, is really focused on my story. It's a memoir of my journey through alcohol addiction and sobriety. And I, the, so if I, that published in 2020, but if I go back a bit, <clears throat> I started writing about this topic as I was getting sober and in my first years of sobriety. And one of the things that I did uh, was I would often answer letters from people uh, who wrote to me about various things around their sobriety or addiction. And I got this letter from a woman whose sister was struggling with alcohol, and she was going through all the things that people go through uh, when someone you love is struggling with addiction. She was angry and happy. Uh, you know, mad and frustrated, but also loves her sister and, you know, kind of walking on eggshells, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. And she asked me, what would you have wanted to hear? And so I wrote her this letter in response and said all these, all this stuff. But then at the end, I said, if you, um, you know, if this is too much, just give her this list. And I made a list of the things that I most needed to hear in that time when I was trying to get sober and kind of still needed to hear. I was a couple of years sober when I wrote this. And there are these nine points, um, and I'll say what they are in a minute. But that letter was written in 2016. I published it on my blog. Um, and I, when I went to write We Are the Luckiest in 2020 or published in 2020, I knew that I wanted those nine things to be the epigraph to the book, so the little part in the beginning of the book before anything starts. And what was funny was people really gravitated to those nine things. Like there's this whole book, you know, that follows, right. but people really love, love those nine things. And what they are is, one, it's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, I love you. And nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. So that book goes out. Like I said, it's a story. It's my story. It's really about my experience. And it was published in January of 2020, and then, of course, the pandemic hit a couple of months later, and I was in the middle of book tour, and um, everything got canceled, and I'm sitting there at home one day, and I see that my local AA chapter is, has shut down, and they're not going to be having meetings, and I'd never seen that happen before, you know, ever not for any storm or holiday or like it just it was it was a moment where I thought oh my god you know what are what's going to happen to all these people that need support and I felt pretty solid in my sobriety at that point and I had built enough of a community and a following online and everything that I just thought okay I'll host some free meetings not AA meetings just I'll create a structure of my own and host some free meetings for this week, <laughs> thinking that that would, you know, the, the pandemic was going to be very short-lived. Um, and so I started hosting these meetings, and 200, 300, 400 people started to show up. And I, I had them that one week, and then I was like, all right, we'll just keep going because I'm around. <laughs> I don't have anything to do. Right. And I mean, I had a lot to do, I was, you know, but I didn't have anything to do. We're all homebound. 
And so uh, I, I hosted those meetings for six weeks. And it felt like in that time there was just something really magical happening in those spaces. Um, a lot of let the me, people let – me, let, me, let me just interrupt you and say there is a real gift in you to be able to recognize that magic happening. And don't lose that. Watch for that. These are rare, you know, in my experience, it's rare to have that kind of chemistry come together in a group. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, you know, not that it should be the, the be all and end all, but it is a wonderful thing when people recognize it and begin to nurture it. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think that's true. I can look back now and see that this that was like this very unique, specific alchemy happening right. at that time. And I'm glad I said yes to it. You know, I'm glad I, I jumped on it. So I was going to stop doing the meetings, though, because I had things to do. And my daughter was home and, and I had, you know, other work. I mean, I... Like I had other things to do. So I, and it was a lot. I was hosting two meetings a day, one in the morning and one at night. And, but I got a lot of people saying, please just keep these going. This is the first community I've ever had. This is the first time I've ever experienced a meeting. I'm really relying on these. I'm loving them. And and so within about, I made a, a quick decision, talked to like a couple people, my brother, and uh, just sort of sat with it. And I thought, you know what? I'll just, I'm going to give it a shot. I hired some people to lead meetings, not so it wasn't just me. I set up, I created a, a name for this community called the Luckiest Club based on my book and just <clears throat> ran with it, really set it up in about, um, you know, about a week and uh, started a company or started a community rather. And it's, now still existing and thriving and we have over 40 meetings a week in this amazing community and app and all these other offerings. So, but what happened in there, so when I decided to create the Luckiest Club, I was like, okay, these nine things are going to be like our backbone. This is what we're going to say at the end of every meeting. And they're just, they're, they're kind of our mission in a way. Um, I tweaked the last two points. So number eight was I love you, and I made it say we love you, or no, you are loved, sorry. You are loved. And then number nine was I will never stop reminding you of these things, and I made it we. So it's now this collective statement. And people just, you know, they 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 stuck, and people really um, – It resonated with them. It resonated with them, yeah, and they're so simple. Um, but people started to, you know, they just, they just clicked. And over time in, in running the luckiest club and, and in the community, it became very clear that while they understood these nine things, they're pretty straightforward and intuitive. It was also like, okay, but what does it really mean? Like, tell me more. How do you take responsibility? Why is it helpful to hear that it's unfair that this is my thing? Like, what's beyond that? Yeah, how do you do uh, responsibility without blame and guilt, et cetera? Exactly. So um, it wasn't good. I wasn't going to write this next book. That wasn't going to be what I wrote. But um, it became clear that that was something that was, that needed to be written. And so the, that's what push off from here is. 
that's the, the book that just came out, is uh, an exploration of those nine points and a sort of prescriptive practical guide to how you might apply them to your life. And that's how it came to be. So it's this interesting thread that started in 2016 and just, you know, I kind of followed the breadcrumbs and um, ended up with now these, these two books out in the world. And so my mind goes to, can you tell us how you define your thing? Because I have this mm-hmm. thing in my head. I don't want to say it until after you've talked. But what what do you mean by this is your thing? Right. So things are what I think of it as anything that pushes you up against the edge of yourself and what you know and how you've coped in the past and, and really just pushes you outside of what you're capable of coping with based on, on your sort of present skill set, I guess. It's pain. Things are things that cause you pain and, and, and stru- suffering and struggle that you have to change. You have to go through some kind of transformation or change in order to get through them. Um, another more simple way of putting it is your things are things that kind of own you. They take away your freedom um, and your attention in a way that is destructive to you. Yeah, and oh. as as I come away from it after reading your two books a couple times, I I think of my thing as anything that blocks me from living fully in the moment, joyfully and creatively. Right. If it's well, that's it's, a much more eloquent <laughs> description of things than I than I did. I should have a better. I've been writing about it for so long, but yes, you're right. That's that's a great because way to put it. That's, that's one of the things that I get from your two books is that it, it, while your struggle with an addictive process is you know part of, of, of both books and a big part of your life, it's not your whole life, and it's not mm-hmm. where you're focusing your energy to be able to have healthy, vibrant life and relationships and have joy in your life and the way i come to think about my thing is anything that is like a roadblock to me being there present in the moment being able to work through what's difficult and still embrace gratitude for life itself and having joy in my life yeah i think that's very well said when you were talking i thought of this line that i heard in yoga teacher training long time ago that was the blocks are the path and I would say that that things are the blocks. They're not a problem. They're actually just part of life, right? But we do, they, they are, the blocks are the path. They're not, um, they're there to help us grow and figure out who we are and create ultimately more joy and meaning in our lives. But, man, they suck, <laughs> you know, no. They're, they're, uh, addiction is one thing, but can be death, illness, divorce, eating disorders, anything that, you know, that, like you said, robs us of our presence. And or has me running away from it rather than mm-hmm. realizing that 
it's not possible for something to actually be bigger than me and be there with it until my strength builds to the point where I can move through it with ease and grace. Right. If I run from it, I don't build that strength. I don't have the experience of being bigger than whatever is in front of me. And and that's one of the things that I have taken so beautifully, I think, that you write about in these books is that the point is to build a joyful, creative, expansive life. Yeah. And anything that wants to get in the way of me doing that is one of my things. Yes. And that, you know, I think one of the the reason I called it a thing, like, to me, when I went to get sober, it felt like addiction was this very singular sort of special thing that people go through and that if you that it it would be something that you just had to live with forever and kind of like center your life around and think about it all the time and worry about it all the time and have it sort of define your identity and the reason I I called it a thing is because there's it's just this benign sort of term like there's so many different things that people face addiction is not that unique it's not unique at all it's not special it's not even i don't think it's that interesting it just so happened to be this one of the things that i faced and the idea is that i think that's important to say because we definitely other people who go through addiction right and, and that's what, one of the things i love about the way you write about this and you've worked through it, thought about it, struggled with it, is that in a culture where the alcohol is basically the only drug you have to explain why you're not using it, right? The only other, mm-hmm. it's the only destructive, addictive substance you have to explain why you're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. It's a, that's a pretty sick culture. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pretty distorted mindset. Mm-hmm. And to build a life culture that I, I i love this line from tuesdays with maury where um mitch album who wrote the book was talking to maury who was dying of als and he said maury i don't get it you can't carry a tune to save your life and when you get on the dance floor it looks like somebody's constantly jabbing you with a cattle prod and yet you sing at the top of your lungs and you dance like nobody's watching how do you do it And Maury said, well, Mitch, if you live in a culture that doesn't help you feel good about yourself, you need to create your own culture. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's what I get from reading your books about, listen, if I want to go into a place where everybody's drinking and everybody's status is how much they can drink and how many shots they can do and still function, and if I want to go into that culture and I have a problem with you know, the way my body responds to alcohol where my judgment derails me and I, and I drink to the point where I'm going to kill myself, I need to create a culture or a place I can go and people I can surround myself with who aren't doing that as their primary entertainment or their primary right. distraction from life. Right. And the thing about your books is to say, this can happen. Totally. This is a very real possibility. There are all kinds of intelligent, creative, loving productive people who don't drink they either yeah. don't drink all the time or they don't drink at all yeah and you can and build absolutely. a life for yourself 
in those environments and, and within those communities. And if they aren't right there in your face, take, you know, Maury's advice, create your own community, which is what you've done with TLC. Yeah. Yeah, and even a step further than that, too, is, like, I can exist in the other spaces, too, where people are prizing this this thing, uh, alcohol, and where it's they're obsessed about it, and, and you know, it, and it's very normalized, and not feel other. Like, I don't care anymore. Right, but you do that after you've created this yes. strength in your core yes. about your value as a person. And and the only way you do that is you define for yourself your value that's other than what the, the culture or the conditioning that you've been brought up in would define you as deficient if you can't drink with your buddies, et cetera. Yes, which I feel like that extra step, that second part is where a lot of recovery stops short it's like you're you're focused on the no instead of the yes and so much about as you just said that you're other yeah you're not just another noodle in the soup there's something really weird about you right you're damaged and broken so you better find other damaged and broken people hang out with and stay away from those other healthy people or those other stronger people Right, those normal people. Right, that's just not the way it works. No, I never bought that. I don't know why. I just, I thought that, I never bought that. It's weird to me. But but I I get why people do, you know, it's everywhere. Well, and if it's, and if if that's the core value or belief system or mode of operating from the community that you find to help you pull back from the edge so you're not going to kill yourself with your addiction, that's a part of the community. Then in order to belong there, you buy into that. Yeah. That we are other and that we are weaker. And that, and right. I get it. And it, it, it's, as you might have said a couple of times, it's a useful first step or two, but it's not our goal. Our goal is not to define ourselves as so damaged and broken. Our goal is to shore up those weak spots and build on our strengths and recognize our value yeah and and you know it's so funny because i still still see it like i saw this interview with melanie lansky is an an amazing actress and her husband they were on the drew barrymore show this was like really recently like two weeks ago and he was talking about how his a little bit about his path and he um you could see in his body language, like he's he is someone who struggled with alcohol and got sober, but you could see in his body language that he there was still so much shame there. And he was very apologetic and very, you know, I don't like there's a difference between humility and like apologizing for yourself. And I, I identified that in the interview as like, God, you don't have to carry it around like that anymore, man. You know, so. Well, and that thing about humility is the way I grew up and the way it was introduced to me that being humble is putting yourself below other people. Mm-hmm. But what I understand from the ancient uh, origins of the word from the ancient Aramaic, et cetera, is that it's more about being able to see that we're all the same and to look for 
and be able to identify the highest and best in another person, and then despite what's coming out of them toward you, cooperate only with their highest and best. Mm -hmm. Engage them as though they are the same level of value. They are another person of a being of brilliance and light. And yeah, they might have temporarily forgotten or yet to discover their brilliance, but I can still relate to them as who they really are. Yeah, I love that. That's great. It just puts us all, so this thing about humility is to recognize that the only significant difference between any of us at any time is the degree to which we live from the realization that we're all the same. What? He said the only difference is that we're all the same. Yes, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only difference. Some of us think we flip-flop between thinking we're better and worse than others, and some of us are able to recognize we're just another noodle in the soup. Yep. That's right. That's right. And and that you there's so much power in that. You know, it's very enticing to want to think that you're one up, but or one down cuz it takes or the one down. off, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. so uh, worthless. Who am I to do this? Yes. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, there's a there's a trap that is really really enticing, but it's lovely to get out of it. So lovely. Yeah, everything's possible there. When you don't have to take yourself so seriously and, and so personally, that's, I think, the real freedom is I found being caught in an addiction or anything that, I guess, causes you a lot of shame is that you're constantly thinking about yourself, not in a not in a good way. But it like everything uh, I talk about this and push off from here. I got it from you, actually, like this, how useless blame is and this idea that, you know, I am to blame for everything in all cases and that, you know, anything bad that happens is my fault. Um, is such a it's such a strange, strangely egotistical way of viewing the world um, and even though we're doing it to sort of punish ourselves or like keep ourselves one down, it's so the 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 um, paradox is that it's this grandiose idea. You know, right. it it you have to have a kind of a split inside yourself to be able to say that there's a part of me that knows what a schmuck I am. Part of me that knows better than the part of me that keeps acting in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm both, you know, the the villain and the hero. It's it's there's a craziness in the way our thought patterns work or that we're conditioned into that, you know, David Bohm has called sustained incoherence, mm -hmm. and and you know, Krishnamurti would talk of as just the absolute trap of thought. Yeah. Right. So um, I think my way into a problem and then I think I better think a way out of it. And it's mm -hmm. not going to it's not going to happen because the actual process of thought is flawed. Here, I'm going to judge myself as bad and wrong. Well, who's judging who? How can mm -hmm. I be? You know, these two separate people, one of them knows so much better than the other. And I beat myself up mercilessly for every misstep or faux pas or whatever. And it's just a trap. It's me just spinning my wheels. I'm not going anywhere. Nope. Yeah, that is the trap. That's one of the things I think that has been the gift of 
being in recovery is that I just, I think of, of, of myself a lot less, not that it, in the sense of like just the, t- the amount of time and energy I spend thinking about obsessing about what I've done wrong in myself and, and, oh, they must be mad at me and this is about me and, and like that exhausting, you know, thought process. Many of us live in those, what in the psychological realm is actually an actual, you know, pathological thing at an extreme and it's called ideas of reference i think everything's about me i walk into a room and i think that the conversation went into a lull and then i think oh it's because i walked in it's if when i make it too much about me i'm losing the perspective that everybody i meet started out as a sperm and an egg and had their own life challenges and is going to end up in dust etc that we're all the same yeah, and they're, everyone's living in their own, you know, the amount, it was such a relief to, like, learn that people were not thinking about me. Like, they, they are thinking, they are doing the same thing I am, which is worrying about themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Guy, Guy Finley has a, a thing where he says, the, the vast majority of your mental and emotional pain, psychological pain, is the bitter fruit of a comparative life. Mm. Wow. Right. And that's that ties into this thing about it. Every time you compare yourself to somebody else and you come out on the bottom, what you're doing is comparing their highlight reel to your outtakes yep. and vice versa. When you come out on top, you're just selectively picking the best bits of you and looking at somebody else and their outtakes. And, and, and again, the, the question that we try to help people ask is, what good does that do you? How does that move you forward in your life, in growth, in productivity, in joy? How does that do that? No, it doesn't. I think it's so so often it's just unconscious, it's subconscious. You're just that's where you're living. Well, it's what we've been con- con- trained in to do, conditioned to, to do, right. because you know we were born into this realm. It's like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Really, I saw him say something like, you know. We say we try to make sense of things and that we put a high value on making sense of things. But pay attention to how limiting that is. That means I'm going to make everything fit into what I can sense with my five senses. Mm-hmm. And he says, the universe is out here trying to talk to us beyond our five senses. What does he mean by that? X-rays, infrared, ultraviolet, all these things are there. We but we can't register them with our senses. Well, there's a lot more going on here yeah. than just the physical. Yeah. And so if all we're doing is measuring any person by what their physical output is, we're in a trap. We're in yeah. this very, very narrow, myopic view of life. Yeah, we're missing 95% of it. <laughs> and, for instance, you would never have noticed the magic going on with the luckiest club if mm-hmm. all you looked at was stats right right oh there's only a hundred people here and there, exactly you know. yeah yeah that's um i've had a few of those mo- moment many actually many in sobriety that was that has been one of the absolute gifts is just being present to what was already are always happening around me i was just too you know, mired in my addiction to to be able to see it. Right. And another way to talk about it is that almost all of us, at least in the Western culture, 
have an addiction, a couple of addictions we're not even aware of. One of them oh, is yeah. the addiction to the familiar. Mm. Another one is the addiction to judge. Yes. And whenever I'm judging, I'm not going to see as many of these, like you called it an alchemy, right? This this wonderful chemistry in this group of people. If I'm judging, it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong. Whenever life unfolds in a way that I don't want it to and I start to judge, that's bad. I'm crimping my view down to this very narrow view. I'm getting tight and tense as though I might need to protect myself from something. And my field of vision is so narrow, I miss Mm -hmm. all of the ways that there might be a little miracle happening here, a wonderful synchronicity happening there, a wonderful opportunity expanding right here. So along with your sobriety, as you, let's say, we uh, we decide to um, get sober from judging, mm-hmm. we will also expand our ability to see these alchemies and miracles yeah. exponentially. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I mean, I, I think, you know, just the alcohol example, I remember so so many days I just had to focus on, like, how sick I felt and just to try to get to the other side of that, you know, I can't even imagine what I miss on those days. Cause, but, but we're all like, if you look at it as judging, you know, judging is like a trance you get into, like it's this very seductive trance. And if all you can think about is how resentful you are about this thing that happened or what, you know, whatever the judgments are never ending. It's like, you're literally at, your eyes are closed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's we come by it naturally. We've developed into it over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of generations, basically focused on the physical above all else. And not every culture did that. Yeah. Right? There were other cultures that had more focus on other energies and intuition and prayer and meditation and being in alignment with nature and so but our western culture has basically have developed to be focusing just on the physical and we've been conditioned from the language we learn all the way through all of our schooling to be in judgment so if you want to take your health and your well-being and the joy in your life to the next level try to go try to abstain from judgment yeah. And get sober from judgment. It's hard, man. It's That's a trick what... because it's been so thoroughly conditioned and so much of our mind that, that helps us, our brain that helps us, is autopilot. Yeah. It's a really mm-hmm. useful thing, right? I wouldn't want to have to learn how to drive a car every time I get in one. <laughs> right. So there's a part of the mind where it's useful, but another area of my life where that judgment and that autopilot and what Guy Finley would call the mechanical level of mind is counterproductive yep at best at best yep totally agree yeah so then a lot of times people ask well so if i'm not judging what am i supposed to do just accept everything and just be a doormat and no the the option that some people like rilke uh, rainier maria rilke will say is we we need to learn to live in the question without demanding an answer because in the moment a mind can ask a really loving, powerful question, that mind isn't even capable of comprehending the answer. That mind has to grow and expand. 
And in Rilke's words, perhaps if we stay in that questioning state, learning to live there, we might grow along someday into an answer. Yes. Yeah, so instead the, of judging, this is bad, this shouldn't happen, is if I start saying, oh, well, this has happened, I wonder how this is going to work out. I leave yeah. myself in an open space rather than, damn it, this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, that's a huge thing I talk about and push off from here was just, is this, that, um, how self-denigration is just like our default in Western culture and shame, we just, we just beat the crap out of ourselves and how we think that's actually what's going to make us change, you know, more pressure, more discipline, more self-beating. And that sobriety was actually the first time that I realized, like, that isn't going to work. That That's not working here. I can't punish – I can't hate myself into getting sober. I tried. Yeah, yeah, uh, and lots of know. people will help you try that. <laughs> they will. Yeah, oh, cause yeah. Because they're, they're doing it to themselves, and, and well, that's and what they've Well, and they're doing it taught. to you, too, right? Yes. Especially that's the, that's the sort of where addiction is unique because there are many people who t- will tell you what a piece of crap you are, you know, right. being. And what we know about how these human mind, body, energy systems work is anybody who tells you you're a piece of crap doesn't feel good about themselves. Whatever comes out of that person's mouth is always going to tell you more about what's going on inside that person than it's ever going to tell you about you or anything around them. Yeah, that's so, it's so hard to take that in though. Like that's a, that's like a PhD level lesson, I think for, for a lot of people, including myself, you know, because we, well, listen, um, being able to live there all day, every day would be PhD level. That's like, but please don't cheat yourself out of the ability to play with it and grow in your ability to do it moment to moment from situation to situation. Right. Because it's as easy as recognizing that's an option and then opening up to, well, what if? Right. What if, what what if that's true? What if that's saying is not about me? Right. What if when I, when I attack somebody in, anger or an insult, it means there's a pain or fear or sadness in me. And what if I take a breath and turn in here and look at that? Mm-hmm. And it's this process of growing into recognizing it, if it happens to be true for you. But the only way you can do that is if you move yourself more and more into observation in the moment and away from belief and judgment. Yeah. I did this really, like, one of the big turning points I had when I was getting sober was I, I, you know, had a night, a morning where I woke up after drinking again, not wanting to again and doing it again. And, you know, I woke up with those same self-beating thoughts running through my head. Like, I can't, you know, I can't believe you're in this spot again. You're, this, you suck. This, you know, what is it going to take? You piece of crap. And thinking, um, I remembered this was actually from Eat, Pray, Love. Like, it just came to me, Liz Gilbert sitting in an ashram in India uh, going through an episode of, like, extreme depression and anxiety and writing to herself in the voice of what she understood as God and just saying, like, look, I'm here. I, I'm stronger than this depression, and I... I'm not going anywhere and like, what do you need? 
I'm not going to leave you. And I remembered that in that moment, and I wrote that down to myself, like, okay, I'm not leaving. Like, you're, I'm here. So you drink again. So what, what happened? What was that about? And it was such a totally, I, I remember looking down at my feet. It was summertime, and, like, my feet were tan, and I had blue nail polish on, and I thought, and thinking, like, your feet are really pretty. And thinking like, you're, it's, it, you're beautiful. It's okay. And so in that moment, it was this like loving curiosity. Like instead of going, I can't believe that happened again and you did that again. Like just going, so what happened? Right. It made, Excellent. you know, made all the difference. Yeah. Childlike curiosity, as you say, loving curiosity. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I realize we're we're pushing up against one of my hard time limits, so I want to come back to you and ask you, if you just take a breath and center, um, what's a, a an area that maybe we haven't touched on yet that you want to talk about or um, something that we've already discussed that you want to go back and highlight? I think that the thing that I would love to – to just touch on is there's a part there's chapter three in the book is about uh in push off from here is is it's unfair that this is your thing and writing this chapter was such a journey for me because I didn't really know what else to say about that like I knew that it was something that I needed to hear and that is very helpful for other people to hear but I didn't know exactly why and like what is underneath that and what I realized in writing it and sort of digging is we don't actually expect things to be fair like we don't really think that life is fair um, so it wasn't about that it was about having someone witness and acknowledge and validate your sorrow. And that's what it was about. We we need, I think it, I read Tara Brock, when I was writing this, I read Tara Brock's Radical Acceptance. And she writes about the, the need for someone to witness our sorrow and acknowledge that it's real. And when it came to addiction, and there's other areas where this applies, but I realized we have all of these sort of unstated rules about grief in our culture, about who's allowed to feel it and at what level and for how long. And when it comes to addiction, we do not think that people who struggle with addiction deserve to feel grief about it. They've caused the harm. They've caused the pain. They need to atone. (laughs) They don't deserve grief. And so what happened when I allowed myself to hear, like, this is just unfair, this sucks, was just that acknowledgement that, yeah, you are going through something really painful and really hard. 
and I see you and I care about your suffering. And you're still okay and you're still beautiful and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, and how I just, that was such a, like, exploration for me um to to see what that was really about and and that's because so many people when you go through something difficult and and specific whether it's parenthood or a divorce or your mother dies or whatever it is you have to find people who are going to understand why this hurts and in the specific way that it hurts. So this speaks to the community that of people you might find. When I tried to go to my immediate family or my, you know, ex-husband or my friends even about what I, I was experiencing when I was trying to get sober, it was so, I was so frustrated and disappointed because they could not acknowledge that. Right. But when I found people who could and who got it and who would say, yes, this does suck and yes, I I see your pain and it's real and uh, I care about it. That changed everything. Yeah, like a warm bath. Mm-hmm. Coming home. Yeah, we have such a fundamental need to be seen. Yeah, and most of us that have that so deeply didn't have it uh, in our families of origins, even if they were, you know, not real abusive families, but whatever. I I interviewed a psychiatrist who's self-reported on the autism spectrum, and she's brilliant. And she talks about it as uh, children are either a laptop or a rock. What does that mean? Well, she said a rock you know, it still functions as a rock. If you bounce it off the wall, if you drop it in a lake, if you throw it in, in a snowbank, it still functions as a rock. It can be a projectile or a doorstop. Or, but a laptop, you bounce that off a wall or drop it in a lake or throw it in a snowbank, it doesn't function at all. Mm. And you don't have to be raised in a highly abusive environment to come out not getting what you feel you need. And if there's a mismatch between your personality and your style and your physical sensitivities and and what your parents and your friends are able to provide in terms of connection and validation and support, then you can grow up feeling really, really weak in your core. And then you really need that outside validation more. You really yeah. need that sense of being heard. Yeah. My hunch, though, is at this stage in your life with your development, your sense of urgency to feel heard is nowhere near as strong as it was when you were getting sober. No, not at all. Because now you've internalized it. Now you've got that core strength in here. Yeah. And that does, you know, I I want one of the, the reasons that I write these books and just, like, like to do the work I do is because that's available to everybody. You know, it's not always going to feel that way. I had such a, I can see that's why I was writing so much and talking so much. I, I could not just say enough about what, what was happening with me at that, you know, for years. And then, and now I don't feel, yes, I don't feel such an urgent need to do that at all. Because it's more solid within you because you can mm-hmm. rest in it. 
internally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being willing to join us again. My and um, I, uh, is it is it your intention to keep um, the Luckiest Club functioning? Is it going to stay yeah. where it is, grow? Is there those support yeah. groups are going to be out there for people? Yeah, it's. I've hired. I don't run it anymore. There's. I have a CEO. There's four full time employees. There's a bunch of amazing contractors who run meetings it's we're growing and thriving and um there's no intention to stop it and people can find out about that where at the luckiestclub.com and then your two books are still available they're available everywhere you could buy a book we are the luckiest and push off from here yeah well thank you so much it's delightful thank you for all the work you do and congratulations Thank you. Thank you for having me. So that was an interview that Dr. Kim did with Laura McCallan, and uh, that was I enjoyed re-listening to that again. So we're a little early, but we welcome you to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio, and today is Tuesday, August the twenty-second, twenty twenty-three, and our call-in number is five six three nine nine nine. 3581 and press 1 and that puts you into queue to talk to us and we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show and uh, got a few people still hanging in there with us from the first hour and some new people coming in so we welcome you to the show and invite you to go to the website which is whyagain.org and Look around, click on things, listen to the archives of the MindShifters Radio. There are also, if you click on Start Here, first thing that comes up is the current 7-step and the 7-step short worksheets, and you can click and download those. Then there are the two videos, um, which I'm not sure why it just now says this video is unavailable. I'll check on that. But if you, oh, okay, they came back up. It must have been something on my Internet. If you ever run into something that's not working on the website, please let me know. Drop me a line, um, text me, email, whichever, and let me know what's going on, what the URL is. Anyway, if you scroll on down past, uh, there's the book, the Chapter 24, and the PowerPoint for the Aramaic Forgiveness, Reality Stress Management. And if you go on down, there's one that says Special Instructional MP3s on wake-up sheets and special shows. And so if you click that, I now have, I've been putting the shows for the pseudo-solutions that Michael's been talking about. He did that on August the 10th, the 17th, the 18th, and yesterday. I don't have yesterday's up yet, but if that has been interest, you can click on those and listen again to get what the pseudo-solutions are. And that is that what he's reading from is part of just one worksheet that we did in the codependence to interdependence intensive. So if you are part of the self-study, then uh, you'll be able to uh, get that, access that, and experience the whole thing. It's not made available to the public. Michael is reading over it and talking about it, but um, as far as the worksheet itself, it's 14 pages, I believe now, and it is not out on the website, and we're keeping that exclusively for the intensive. 
But it's awesome information, and so we have been putting those special shows out there so you can go back and re-listen and get what the pseudo-solutions are and kind of tap into the power person dynamics. So we welcome you to the show. If you have any questions, please press 1 and ask your questions or give us your comments or which way you would like to go on it. I'm going to check and see if Michael's having any issues getting in. And... Um, let us know what's happening for you. Have you had any experiences? Some people have been sharing um, their experiences of doing the codependence intensive and how powerful it is, even though that it's a self-study. You can go at your own pace. You can do it in the 17 weeks. You know, the first intensive we did was 14 weeks. And then this worksheet that he keeps that he's going over is um, extended our second intensive to 17 weeks. So when you're doing the self-study, it's broken down by week, week one, week two, all the way up to week 17. And you could do it in 17 weeks, or you can take a year, two years, whatever. Do it at your own pace at home. And we invite you to do that because it's super powerful. And I'm going to welcome Michael to the show. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Delighted and honored that you're here. And... Um, as you were saying, the, the progress that people are making in doing that intensive, you know, when when we do the uh, intensive, it includes a pre and post personal code evaluation. And the personal code evaluation is something that's based on what's called the MMPI, Minnesota Fault Personality Inventory. And I can remember the first time that, uh, that Tim, Dr. Tim, came to Heartland, you know, he's a clinical psychologist for, at that time, going on close to 40 years, I think. And um, we did the evaluation, and we talked about the changes in scores. And he was like, what, what do you mean changes in scores? So, well, you know, the, the changes that we see as people do this work, I think, no, no, wait a minute. When people get this, this done, this picture, that's their life profile. Those things don't change. Well, they do have to engage in actual forgiveness and these tools. And so uh, there's one gentleman, without mentioning a name, who started back in June of last year, and he completed the uh, intensive January 1st of 2023 and did his evaluation. So the, the scores are broken down into 10 different areas. Now, again, these are scores that, according to psychology, don't ever change. And so just looking at raw numbers and change in scores, code evaluation breaks one's personal code down into 10 different areas. So there's a score for each area, scores that theoretically don't change. So the first one is stress management, and this gentleman uh, had a 50%, 50 cent, pardon me, 50-point improvement on a scale of 100. So 50% of the scale he increased in stress management. In honoring others, a 28-point increase. In honoring self, which was one of his highest scores when he started, he went up 11 points. Stayed the same in honoring truth. Now, and 
basically what happens, you know, when people do the evaluation, there are 10 different areas, and we give them assignments in three of those areas. So for this gentleman, one of his highest scores was honoring truth when he started. He was given assignments in three other areas. All three of those areas and others passed his truth score, so when, when he completed the intensive, his score was identical on truth. However, it was now his number one score. It was number five. Everything else passed it. Doing the assignments for each one changes those scores. <clears throat> his number one challenge when he started the, uh, the uh, intensive was freedom from fear. And it was in major crisis. And he went up 67 points in fear. In healing fear. Hostility is the sixth area. And his increase over six months of doing that codependence to independence communication practice was 39 points. His highest score was honoring laws of living. And that's basically seeing oneself or comes from people tend to see themselves as victims. His score went down just six points on that. So it was his highest score, went down a negligible amount, but again, everything else passed it. So then that score on honoring laws of living became his number two challenge when he completed the course. So when you do the post-evaluation, you... Uh, you know exactly how effective your work has been because you can see the change in your scores. His nutrition digestion toxicity was his highest score when he started and it stayed exactly the same. It was almost off the charts. It couldn't go anywhere. It was almost at 100. Use of will went up 22 points. And then validity or consistency, one of the scales on the evaluation. If you've ever done the evaluation, you'll remember that when you did it, there was a question right there at the beginning. And then you got to the same question toward the end. You're like, well, they already asked that question. Why are they asking it now? Well, the way that it's set up, it's couched in certain questions that will tend to have certain brain cells firing. And if there's a tendency for people to be double-minded, where, you know, today they're answering yes to this and tomorrow it's no and the next day it's yes and the next day it's no, you know, uh, where the consistency of mind is not there. That was one of his highest scores when he started, and he went up 15 points in that almost off the scales. So his, the, the reliability of his mind once he's moving somewhere just improved by 16 points and almost up at 100%. So that kind of gives you a, an idea of the kind of changes that can happen. And, you know, when psychology says those scores can't change and then you see them changing by... 30, 50, 60, 70 points. It's pretty amazing. We've seen people, we had one gentleman who came to Heartland. Oh, this goes back very early days, 32, maybe 33 years ago. And he was in crisis university. He was a former vet and had what they call PTSD. And his first evaluation, he was in crisis in virtually everything. And when he completed the summer, he actually stayed for the whole summer. Almost every one of his scores was up in the 90th plus percentile. It's just, you know, if you have the tools, 
you can change the content and the flow of this thing called the mind. And lots of people have what are called mental disorders, diagnosed with mental illness. And when you start removing the thought disorders that reflect is what they call mental illness, mental illness disappears. So we were talking about anesthetics and uncovering, let's see, I'm looking for... We were at the point where we were talking about what kind of stories did I tell myself that I need to heal to convince myself that the power person message that I either received or made up was true. Things like, you know, I'm so stupid, I deserve to suffer, I'm a bad person, I deserve what I get. Those kinds of messages. What, what did I have to tell myself about myself? So we asked the question. It's actually step 10 in the, uh, in the new power person worksheet. What stories did you tell yourself about your power person to convince them that what they told you was true? And now it's what stories did I tell myself to convince myself that the power person messages that I made up or received were true? And the next step is looking at, you know, it's interesting if you look at the word spell, spelling. I mean, we say that's putting a group of characters together. But look at the word behind the word, putting people under a spell. And this is done with words. It's done with letters. And so the question we ask at this step in the worksheet is, when you were under the spell of the power person dynamic, you believe the perceptual constructs of your mind. And then... We're asking you to honor truth and and actually look at the facts and determine whether or not your mind's construct is really truly provable. Asking yourself the question is is the con- conclusion that I've generated in my mind really true? And ask yourself in the whole idea of this worksheet, the whole idea of the codependence to interdependence communication practice intensive is to unwind the thought disorders in the mind related to the power person. And virtually every person's life on planet Earth today is controlled by this power person dynamic. That, that's my offering. You know, just take a look at the news. and Look at the amount of hostility and fear and rage and war and suffering and drama and trauma. That's all power, all power person stuff. So to actually start to question yourself. What is it in the actuality of the situation, if I really allow it in, that would support me in healing my underlying thought disorders? So one might have come to the conclusion that, well, you know, my power person never supported me. And once that thought was planted, then whatever support was offered was literally refused. And so now the question is being asked, if I tell myself the truth... Were there ways that I blocked awareness of how they supported me, how they were true to me? And the request is to start to look at alternative realities, the one your mind is generating. 
And the idea here is to escape from the generationally patterned tendency to generate realities about self and others that are based in hostility or fear. So, you know, you might move into something like, I'm experiencing an old pattern here. I got it, man. I've been through this 87 different times with 42 different people. Maybe it's time for me to forgive my part in this. And to look at the thought disorders, start to look at the emotions going on in your world, identify your emotion. And then step up rather than, as most people do, living in the one world universal religion of blame, you made me feel mad, you made me feel sad, you hurt me. Rather than living in that, stop and ask yourself the question. It actually refers back to an earlier step to look at something you did earlier. And identify your emotion and then let yourself become aware of the thought you use to create that emotion. You know, if the emotion, let's say, is guilt and you tap into feeling the emotion of guilt and, you know, gee, every time I'm around my power person, my parent, you know, I feel guilty. They make me feel guilty. It's like, no, you have thought disorders that create guilt. And, of course, if they're related to your power person, whenever you're around them, those thoughts are going to tend to move. But if you start to own the thoughts, then you start to change the thoughts. You don't, you don't have to be stuck with those thought disorders. And it can be very helpful to identify where you're feeling the emotional energy in your body. Where is the energy stored? Where is it moving? Then we move forward to looking at any form of fear or hostility-based messages and take responsibility for having given fear and or hostility-based messages to others or to self. You know, these things tend to be patterned in the mind. And oftentimes the hostility and fear-based messages are done to achieve the goal of control, of avoidance, of distraction, of deflection. And to look into those messages. And as you start to review these things, you get to realize these are my thoughts and I can change them. If the majority of my thoughts are based in hostility and fear around any given situation, then I'm going to suffer from a literal mental illness in that situation. You know, people break down. You know, I'm powerless. I can't help it. I can't do anything. I can't escape from this. So once you've identified the messages that you've given to either yourself or to others, then the next step is to go back and look at, to recall a time, look at each message that you've used to, you know, do any kind of control or avoidance, distraction, deflection. Literally write those messages down. There's space in the worksheet to write those down. 
And then in step, the next step, I recall a time when my power person conveyed those messages to me. And so go back situation by situation and what you'll find is the habitual ways that one tends to avoid, distract, control, deflect were things that were learned in relationship to the power person or things that one observed the power person doing. So then take each of those messages and just take a look and see if there was a time when that your power person gave you that message and, and make note of how you felt when you received those messages. Then we move into what, in general, did I perceive my power person's needs to be? And what did my power person do to get those needs met? And were their behaviors just and fair? And so the invitation at this stage in the worksheet is to identify a power person behavior and then just do the assessment. Was it just and fair? And then your rationale, why or why not? And what this will do is it will tend, as you start to focus there, to bring you into a more responsible place with your own power person thinking, the dynamics that went on with your power person. And then ask yourself the question, have I ever exhibited any needs similar to my power person? And most people find, (laughs) yeah, they're all the same ones. And then what have you done to get your needs met and were your behaviors just and fair? Why or why not? And then go back and check it out with what you saw with the power person. You'll probably find there's a whole lot of projection there. Take a look at what did I either think or feel I had to do to meet my power person's needs? And were those actions based in love or in fear or hostility? So what did I either think or feel, you know, like they say, well, you know, whenever I'm around my dad, whenever I'm around my mom, I feel like I need to, mm, whatever they, so you want to identify that and recognize that all of those feelings are just based on apparent thinking. You can choose to do those things out of choice without having the hostility or fear dynamic behind it to say no. The next stage in the worksheet is to start to look at was there ever punishment from your power person? And if so, how were you punished? And to really look closely, we're unwinding these, the way that your mind generates realities around your power person. And the realities that tend to drive you when you become ultra-stressed. This is what it will allow you to unwind. So if it was punishment, how did I feel? What was my emotional response? And were there any thoughts or thought disorders in response to that punishment? You know, if you talk to average psychologists today, they'll tell you that 
90 to 95, maybe as much as 98% of our thinking is unconscious. And if we never reviewed these things, then whenever they resonated into activity and stress is what resonates them into activity, they'll tend to take over. They'll become the behaviors that you do, oftentimes against your own will and choice. It isn't Dr. Feelgood to surface and look at them, but it sure is Dr. Heelgood. You sure can step in and change those dynamics consciously, purposely. And then the worksheet invites you to take a look and see if you've ever done any of the behaviors, including punishment, that you observed your power person using to get you to achieve the goals they had for you. If I've done any of those behaviors, who did I do it to? How did it feel in my, my body when I did those behaviors? And of course, how do you suppose it felt for them? The person that you did the behavior to. Did you have to give anything up in order to meet your power person's needs? Remember, power person is the person who had more control over your life at some point than you did, was not functioning out of love, and you perceived it as survival. This leads, when those three things happen simultaneously, and it's usually a child and a parent, it leads to massive blocks of unconscious information that when resonated into activity, takes over one's life, oftentimes against their own will and choice. And the tendency is for these things to be replicated. You go back to the Aramaic language, and you hear their understanding of what's going on. You hear them say, look to the lives of the fathers, for ours are but a shadow of theirs upon the earth. And, of course, we're not just talking about the male parents. Look to the lives of the parents. In one place, it specifically says the sins, and remember that word sin is an archery term, simply means off the mark. The energetic patterns, the behavior patterns, the word patterns, the thought patterns, the punishment patterns that were off the mark for a human being, off the mark with love, will tend to be passed, will be passed from three, up to three, the third and fourth generation, pardon me. And so as you review those things, especially if you do the forgiveness work that empowers you, or I should say more correctly, uncovers the empowerment that is already in you. You already have everything you need within you. The teacher that's going to show it to you is within you. It's not out here in the world. And so the next question that the worksheet asks is, did my power person ever block, ignore, or prevent their own needs from being met? And if so, how did they do that?
And then, have you ever done the same? Take a look at whether or not you've blocked, ignored, or prevented your own needs from being met. The next session goes into asking the question, if you were raised in a codependent household, and, and how can you tell if you were raised in a codependent household? Did you ever hear the words, you made me? You make me so mad. That's a codependent household. Pretty rare for there to be something other than that. So if you were raised in a codependent household, what were the rules you perceived you needed to follow in order to survive in that household? What, when you were functioning out of your power person dynamic, was your definition of love? And if your definition of love was something like, I love you, do you love me? Then know that you're not talking about love at all because the essence of human life is love. It's a noun. It's a state of being. It's who we are. What we're looking with, to do with this work is to uncover, to support each person in uncovering the truth of their being as love and coming into direct full experience of that. And if you look at the definitions of love that you learned in relationship to your power person, how's that impacted your relationships? How's that played out for you? How's it working for you? The objective of this particular intensive, the objective of this and every worksheet is to free us from the habituated generational thought, word, and behavior patterns that tend to run people unconsciously. And when you say to somebody, why did you do that? Most people come up with, I don't know. And, and what they're really saying is, I have this unconscious prompt in my mind when I have this type of goal. to step into this particular type of behavior. And if the behavior is based in some form of hostility or fear, when you get right down to the root of it, the majority of it is was initiated in response to and in mimicking power person dynamic. What we're looking to do with this tool, because it runs so many lives, is to support people in understanding these dynamics and clean them up in their own lives, in their own minds. So that's our objective. And I hope you find that useful. And Ms. Jeannie, do we have everybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? No, it is all quiet. So someone press one. You're first in line. We started early, so we've got 39 minutes. We have plenty of time. Yay. So if you're in listener land and you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563 999 
888-346-3581. If you call that number, you'll be listening to the show directly on your phone. And then if you push 1, that will raise a hand in the control panel, and we'll be having a conversation. So what's on your mind? How can we support you? Push 1, let's talk about it. I worked with someone the other day who asked the question of, you know, he he realized he was in a codependent relationship, and it's like, why? How does that happen? You kind of described that, but... Well, if you look at our Healing Through Relationships workshop, one of the serious, but I present kind of as a tongue-in-cheek line that I have in that workshop that I repeat is... Most relationships are based in matching bags of garbage, and the world calls them love relationships. We have this attraction to one particular person, and occasionally it might be because of the state of being of each of those two people. But more often than not, It's the bags of garbage that create the resonance that causes us to turn our heads in a particular direction because of that energy link. People go into their relationships based on matching bags of garbage, hiding, pretending to be something that they're not, and hiding whatever it is that they haven't dealt with in their lives. You know, oftentimes the message coming from the power person implies to a child that they're so broken that the child discards all awareness of who they are. And when they come to a new relationship, it's almost like, well, I know that who I am is worth nothing. Therefore, what do you need for me to be in order to love me, quote unquote? Put those words in quotes because nobody's ever going to love you. Love isn't a verb. It's a noun. It's a state of being. So when one has bought into the idea that who they are has no real value, then they think that approval is love. And they'll do virtually anything to be approved of. You know, love is not a behavior trait. Love is not a behavior we can engage in. It's the essence of being a human being. And saying, I love you or I love myself, is one of the most fundamental mistakes that we can make as human beings. And that might shock some people. But when most people say the words, I love you, I mean, you know, look at people who come together, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, please marry me, now we get married, and then it isn't long before the honeymoon is over, and what has happened? What was called love has now turned to hate. It wasn't a relationship based in love, it was a relationship based in matching bags of garbage. I mean, it's so common that we have a saying for it in the culture, the honeymoon is over. What does that mean? when they talk about love are talking about approval rather than attraction based in the truth of who we are. I'd offer it's an important, though subtle, truth to integrate 
realizing that love is not a behavior trait, not a behavior you can engage in, not something you can get, not something you can do, not something you can give or get from another. It's our created essence. It's a state of being. So you can't love someone, you can't love self, because love is a noun. It's not a verb. When when somebody tells their minds, be loving, my mind tries with the experiences and, and many false belief that, beliefs that it's acquired through a thousand generations to guide me to being loving. Now, hold a newborn child and notice when you tap into the essence of that newborn that you're tapping into love and the child's not loving you, the child is love. You listen to all the insane definitions of love. Our culture, how many have ever heard a parent say, I'm only doing this, i.e. beating you or punishing you because I love you. This hurts me more than it hurts you. That's not human life. That's not a human being functioning. But that's the repeating of a generational belief or something that somebody read in a book that the best way to, quote-unquote, love a child is to beat them into submission. I mean, you hear it out of church, Andy, all the time, spare the rod, spoil the child. Excuse me, the rod was something you leaned on for support. It was not something you beat a little kid with. I can't tell you over the years how many people, when I've talked about this topic, said, well, you know, my father beat me, whipped, whipped me, is usually the word, didn't hurt me. Oh, really? Yeah, under stress. What kind of venom do you spew toward your partner? That's the venom that was put into you when your power person beat you. And when you say it didn't hurt you, you've totally and completely blocked from your life the sensitive state of being that you were in as a child. And the overwhelming trauma and hurt of the first time that that person who was supposed to cherish you turned their venom on you, turned their generational power person dynamic on you. There's so many false definitions of love that pass in most people's minds as love. It can be hate. It can be implanting fear, punishment, abuse. Intimidation can all be accepted as a substitute for love. And, and someone doing that will convince you or try, attempt to convince you that they're only doing it because I love you. If one takes on the goal of realizing themselves as love and then sets goals for the mind to support them in functioning out of love to be love, then that person could never get lost in such an error as the culture puts out there. If one holds those false definitions and sets goals based on those definitions, they'll get a feel-good hit of dopamine out of achieving that goal. Because when you achieve a goal, you get, a, you get an internal reward, this hit of dopamine. It's, and dopamine's been called happy powder. Oh, this feels good. The abusive parent gets a dopamine fix, a chemically-induced internal dose of pleasure 
from abusing their child. Because the mind can get lost in false definitions. I love the, uh, the insight that Liam Neeson, the actor, offered. Quote, here's what he says. Everyone says love hurts, but that's not true. Everyone gets these things confused with love. But in reality, love is the only thing in the world that covers up all pain and makes someone feel wonderful again. Love is the only thing in the world that doesn't hurt. Powerful thought, Liam. Thank you. My offering is that when you tap into the truth of who you are as love, it is the active presence of love in you that is the light in which truth becomes visible. There's a whole different process that happens in the mind when you shift out of telling your mind to be loving and tell your mind that you are love and to support you functioning as love. Because when you do that, my focus is now on my internal condition. And the mistakes that we've just talked about above become impossible to get lost in. From there, if errors have been made and correction is needed, that goal can be accomplished. But if you're trying to tell your mind to be loving, it'll go through every definition and misdefinition. You know, it's it's interesting that uh, Vladimir Lenin, a man responsible probably for more deaths in, in history than any human being ever, said the way you destroy a culture is change the meaning of its words. So when you are asking your mind to support you functioning as love, rather than be whatever aberrant definitions perhaps are already in your mind, then corrections can occur and the goal can be accomplished. And the mind, when this course correction occurs, if I have the tools, will produce behavior prompts that support me, experiencing the truth of who I am and what I am, rather than playing out the almost universal fraud that love is a verb. I've had people over the years not not getting that distinction say to me, well, it's not a big deal. What does it matter? You know, okay, so if, I, if I'm going to be love or if I'm going to do love, what's the difference? It's no big deal. Well, let's use an example. Let's imagine that someone has a really severe circulatory disorder and they go to a specialist, a doctor, And the doctor tells them that they need a specific treatment to fix the problem with their cells. And they tell you that it involves the epidermis and epithelial cells, two different types of cells. And you ask the doctor, well, which cells are you going to treat? And the doctor says, what does it matter? It's not a big deal. It's just a few letters different. Epithelial, epidermis, what's it matter? We'll work on one or the other. How long are you going to hang out with that doctor? Be careful hanging out with people who tell you to be loving. And watch 
how as they profess their quote-unquote supposed love for you, when the stress is up and the chips are down, what kind of energy they point at both themselves and at you. So there's a a piece of information that uh, that you might feel helpful in in recognizing that one of the goals of this work is to tap into that active presence of love, that state of being, and rather than setting ourselves up for failure by attempting to do love, then get your mind to support you in moving in the direction of recognizing the truth about yourself and undoing any false self. You remember Yeshua says, in order for you to live, you've got to die. So the the work, the, the underlying work of this particular body of information is to learn to forgive, that is remove anything that is unlike love, so that the only thing left is the truth of who you are. You have a hand up. You know, the Greeks tell us that uh, that Yeshua told us to love one another. He never said it. If you force that Greek-imposed meaning into Yeshua's mouth, it leaves you stuck in an error upon which most of our other errors rest. Following the Greek idea, we try to do love, which is impossible. The command in Aramaic was worlds apart. It was to be love. One command leaves people striving to do the impossible. The other, the Aramaic, explains something achievable. And people who want to nullify the words there. Remember that Yeshua says, the power of life and death is in our words. Accurate words are important. Jeannie, you've got a thought for me? We have a hand up. Awesome. Let's say hello to our caller. I believe it's Dan 757. You're on the air. Hey, y'all. Good to good to hear you. Hey, welcome, good sir. How do you be? I'd be well. I'd be well. Um, Processing through feelings and thoughts and realities and all that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, enjoying the show today. And I had some thoughts and questions I wanted to share and and ask. Um, You know, I do. I'm relating to, um, you know, our essence being love and the. I think I've, I've, you know, experienced or or believed, you know, many times even before coming to this work of like the the need to remove or cancel anything unlike love and to just let that true self shine forth after. But that's a lot of canceling to do, right? Like it's a lot. It tends to, to be um, a lot, yes, when you start that path. So, but I relate to that being being my essence. Although there's there's part of me that I guess doesn't believe that or you know, it's kind of on the fence, but I know that, um, you know, my experience sort of with, with my power person, my household growing up is that, 
I got sort of punished or shamed or discouraged when I was uh, embodying that essence, the, you know, spontaneous and the being love was strongly discouraged. Um, And I was sort of taught another definition that it had to do with sacrifice and suffering for other people and sort of aggrandizing yourself by suffering and being a martyr and all that kind of thing. Um, but I guess what my, and I think I suspect what I'm sharing is like pretty common. Um, but my question is, though, you just that, described so virtually think, the whole culture. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's just, you know, my brand with some, with some subtle variations or whatever, but it's, it, but it's pretty much all of us. Right. So, you know, I have these memories and this, pain inside me about being being love and then being really sharply punished or humiliated or shamed for that or discouraged and and so what my the things I get kind of hung up on is I've done a lot of um you know I guess healing or uncovering or digging around or remembering or therapy all kinds of stuff to recognize that I did you know suffer different kinds of abuse as a child and I was taught things that were wrong but I also don't like I want to recognize that I was in a way a victim of that, but I also don't want to fall into blaming my power person and my uh, context I grew up in. Does that make sense? It's like I've, I've kind of struggled on where is the balance there. I mean, what I've sort of come to is 2000 so I'm an adult now. Go ahead. No, I'm just affirming that 2,000%. If you get into the blame game, then probably what you're doing is replicating what your power person did, was when they didn't want to be responsible yeah. for what they were experiencing, and then they blamed you. You know, look at you, kid. You right. make me so, you know, whatever it is. And correction needs to occur. Correction from a connected space of love and responsibility. It's not about, I'm going to blame my power person. I'm looking at, in, you know, you'll notice as I've been talking about it, that it's the the message that was received from the power person or made up by me in response to the power person because right. oftentimes it's a self-imposed thing. It's like out of the content of my mind, I made this message up and it's not something my power person ever even conceived of sending to me. But I project it, and that's where the forgiveness process comes in and collapsing into using the tool of forgiveness to collapse into oneself to remove those dynamics rather than assign blame to somebody because we happen to either experience it with them or make it up through our interaction with them. So would it, you know, just sort of trying this on, would it be, uh, reasonable to say, you know, I've got to recognize what, what I experienced as a child, how where my learning came from. However, I am responsible for the realities I carry in my mind and the my interpretation or what I experienced, whatever I'm carrying around is mine to clean up. Is that kind of like we see it clearly? We don't, we're not, we're not, um, you know, pardoning someone else. We're not ignoring that and we recognize the pain and suffering we may have gone through, but it's it's in our mind. It needs to be cleaned up by us, you know, today with, with forgiveness tools. Is that Would that be 
accurate? Precisely. Precisely. And you may choose to pardon someone. You may look at, gee, you know, I can remember this event that happened and what my power person did was absolutely ridiculous, insane, off the mark. I can acknowledge that and I can choose to pardon them. So I recognize, mom or dad, what you did, or big brother or neighbor down the street, that what you did was really off the mark, and I'll pardon you for that. And now I realize that my forgiveness work begins. Now I'm going to go inside myself and undo the effects of that interaction that impacted me so powerfully. Right, because, well, you know, they have painful realities too, and I don't, you know, there was a time where I sort of came up with a story about, well, my power person was being vicious and wanted to destroy me, and someone kind of pointed out, well, that's your, that's your, that's how your mind made sense of what was going on, but that doesn't mean that that's what their, their reality is probably more like doing something to try to survive emotionally. Right, exactly. Or pass on the family tradition which oftentimes, sadly, right. is based in, you know, uh, abuse. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's a, you know, to me it was sort of textbook. I mean, I recognize looking back, I believe that my my role was, you know, I was going to be the great hope for my parents because, if, you know, if I was, if everything turned out right, then emotionally they would be rescued by me. But when I defied their expectations, it was like, I was, you know, it was terrible. The, so, and I re- see how I carry that into relationships I have today. There's a big reason for resolving power person dynamics. Yeah, it seems to inform everything. Precisely. Yeah, when we, when... When that content is held in the mind and resonated into activity by something that's actually happening in our world, then what the mind does, instead of being with what's actually happening in the world, the mind goes to its default content, usually a power person dynamic, constructs a whole view of the world, a whole detailed reality, complete with sight and sound, yeah. and, and substitutes that construct in the mind for what's actually happening. Most people rarely ever experience what's actually going on in the actual world. They go from one reality to another, to another, to another, never realizing that their mind is constructing a world out of unresolved power person dynamics. And as you free yourself of that, it's like everything changes. Yeah, so a lot of time now I can... uh you know, just going about my life, I can recognize when something like that is active, you know, it's become, it's obvious to me that my, you know, my stuff is being triggered into activity and I'm not in touch with what's going on. I'm in touch with painful emotions within me. But um, as far as like canceling that on the spot or just 
letting it go, that that is a lot more challenging for me than just recognizing that it's operating. Well, and and in fact, you can't just cancel it. You know, that's an inappropriate use, you know, to say, well, you know, I've got this big pain for average, so I'm just going to cancel it. Well, that's <laughs> just not possible. That energy is the energy that's there. But when you realize that that particular construct of the mind, that particular reality is is constructed as a result of holding a particular goal, you know, certain content is used by the mind every time a particular goal is is activated in the mind. And so people tend to live in those patterned realities. When the goal is canceled, the perceptual construct collapses. And when it collapses, that's what gives us access to the underlying energetic dynamic that tends to go back to the power person dynamic. And when I bring that forward in the presence of love, it dissolves. When I bring that energy directly into direct awareness, rather than projecting it into my mind's brain, my brain's image of someone else, that I bring it forward directly to the presence of love, then it dissolves in me and I'm freed of that dynamic. And... I certainly understand why the Greeks turned forgiveness into, okay, I'll let you off the hook for the pain that's happening inside of me, rather than, I think I'll go in and delete the pain that's inside of me. In the first century Aramaic language, the tool was being offered for, you're in pain? Oh, okay, here's how you delete it. Here's how you remove it. Here's how you forgive it. The Greeks said, well, no, 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 you don't want to be responsible for that. You don't want to know that that's yours. Just tell your neighbor it's their fault and let them off the hook. Forgive them for it. And so, you know, it's been turned totally backward for centuries. And it's almost universal. I know when we did some work in the Spanish community, the word for forgive in Spanish is pardon. It's all about pardoning rather than actually collapsing one's own perception and cleaning up the underlying content of the mind which has been going on for generations and generations. And and when we do that, it leads to the dissolution of what people think of as self. And that can be a scary step in the process. Because that yeah. self, that false self based in the power person dynamic, bears no resemblance to the truth of who we are as love. And yet, is that why most people will refuse to go there. Go ahead. Is, is that why I feel like, like I'm dying a lot of the time when I get intensely into this work? You know, I have these... Exactly, uh, yes. It is, it is experience. When the false image of self, the non-being self, begins to crumble for most people because there's terror under that false self, they go into yeah. terror, and it is experienced as a very real death. You know, you go back to Yeshua in the Aramaic, and he talks about in order for you to live, you've got to die. He's saying in order for the true being that you are to live, that which you thought you were, you were has to be dismantled, has to go. And, and many times it's experienced as a very real and, and very traumatic death experience. Well... You know, I've I've had that feeling a lot of times, but it's 
escalated since I've, you know, gotten really into the worksheet process here recently. And, you know, I was just out for a walk earlier and I was like, you know, I feel like everything's falling apart and I mean, like my consciousness really. And, and I'm able to see that that's not um, as terrible a thing as I think it is, but it's scary and painful though at the same time. Well, one of the things that happens when you uncover the energetic dynamics of the past is that experiences that were at some point in the past painful are recalled. And my take is it's really important to recognize that a memory of pain is just a memory of pain. We don't have to re-empower it in real time today. You know, I remember when this terrible thing happened to me when I was five. I just had this bull, terrible memory, this whole... I don't have to make that real today as and, and mm. re-empower it as the tragic and terrible thing that it seemed to be when I was five. So I can allow those it, memories to come forward and recognize that oh, this is just a memory. I don't have to get lost in it. Is it typical to have a lot of, um, you know, sort of recalled pain and fear, but it's sort of vague? It doesn't necessarily attach to a specific cognitive memory or anything like that. I've got a lot of that that's kind of like free-floating, and I don't really, I don't know what it belongs to, but it's, it seems intense. Well, if you remember, one of the things we talk about is what we call a vitality meter. So let's imagine we've got a vitality meter. It goes from 1 to 10. When you're at full yes. vitality level 10, everything's rocking, everything's moving. You can't possibly hide anything from yourself that's internal to you because your vitality is there and everything's available. Over time, what tends to happen if we're not being supported and functioning as low is that a painful experience comes along, and I have no idea that this painful experience is a result of a thought disorder that I have, that my pain is actually coming from my thought disorder. I think it's the situation out there, and I don't want to feel it, so I find a way to weaken myself. I find a way to bring my vitality down from a 10 to a 9. And I have an experience that I bring it down to an eight and a six and a five and a four and a three. And then one day I get this vague recall of this big, terrible, painful thing that happened. And boy, I want to be finished with that. But it's a level eight pain. And I'm only at a level three vitality. Now I can say I want to get rid of that energetic pattern more than anything else in the world, but if I don't do what it takes to get back to a level eight plus vitality, like, you know, the way people 
hide things from themselves. You know, the, the, the classic, I mean, virtually every bite of food in the culture, especially if you go into places like fast food restaurants, they're literally drugs. They're sugar, they're salt, they're oil, they're fat. That's it. You know, it's like it doesn't matter whether you go to the chicken restaurant and you go to the hamburger restaurant or you go to the, you know, whatever. I don't want to get into naming any particular companies. But basically you go to the chicken restaurant and it's, well, what kind of, what, what flavor of, of uh, fat, salt, and sugar do you want here? And then you go to the burger restaurants, like what flavor of fat, salt, and sugar are we going to have here? And and all of those things are anesthetics or drugs that weaken, literally weaken our physiology, ultimately creating disease processes. And so hmm. one has to start to change the habits all the way across the board in order to build the vitality up. So now somebody's, gee, you know, instead of going and grabbing a, a quart of ice cream and showing it down, what I'm going to do is have a, uh, a sprout salad. And then somebody gets up to a level eight vitality. And it's like, man, I'm on top of it all. I just broke through a big issue today. I feel so great. And they go to bed. They're at this level eight vitality. And in the morning, they wonder if anybody got the number of the Mack truck that went through the room during the night because they're lower than a snake's belly. It's like, what happened? I was feeling so great last night. Well, here's what happened. You hit that level 8 plus vitality, and that old 8 toxin, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, relational, thought disorder, that toxic energy now is starting to unwind, and you're feeling the impact of it. So the new level of vitality is what opens the next depth of what needs to be healed, and you get to go through the detox process. I'm not going to get the full-blown cognitive recall of that memory until I get to a level 8 vitality. But I will process it. If I'm down at a 3 and I get to a level 5 vitality, I'll do a certain amount of work around that, and I'll have this vague recall. I won't know exactly what it was, but I'll I'll clean something up. And then I get to a level 6 vitality, and I, I clean that one up on a level. I get to another a level 7 vitality, and, man, I'm I'm starting to rock through this stuff. And then, bingo, you know, I go to bed, I'm excited, I'm delighted, I know I'm on the right track, and I have the most traumatic, horrible dreams, and I'm in that energy in the morning when I wake up. And I'll, all of a sudden, I have this full-blown recall of this horrible thing that happened. Because I'm at a level of vitality where I'm able to handle it. You know, the body-mind has this built-in suppress mechanism, and if I don't have the, the vitality to handle a particular issue, it, is, it doesn't matter what I do, it's not going to surface. Because literally, the toxic release could kill me. So the body-mind has this built-in protect mechanism. Until I get to a level of vitality higher than the depth of the toxic experience, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, relational, whatever it is, until I get to a level where I can handle that, it's not going to surface fully. But I'll work so at it like in dribs and drabs and pieces. Right. And then one day the full-blown memory comes. Okay. So the answer is just plug away, do the work, and get as healthy as possible, it sounds like. One foot in front of the other. Move everything, you know, part of when people do an intensive with this, we have a private Facebook page. And on that Facebook page, they're like the intensive 
as Jeannie was describing at the beginning of the show, there's a 14-week fresh and raw food program. If people come to Heartland, we don't have one ounce of cooked food on the property. Everything is fresh and raw. Everything is as it comes from the ground and mm. therefore vital and strengthening. So part of the intensive process is a link to our private Facebook page with all of that food information so you can do as much or as little of the food program as you want, but it's all laid out with recipes. There's literally there's 14 weeks of three meals a day of fresh and raw, high-vitality food. There's instructions on how to set your kitchen up. There's instructions on what kind of equipment you need. There's instructions on when to order the food for this week's meals. That's all part and parcel, and also then there's a link to a private Trello app that has all of the recipes, pictures, and all of that. There are videos explaining it, and you can ask questions in the in the uh, using the Facebook page too. So that's and because that's a key part of the process. If people eat, keep eating the same junk, you know, what kind of salt, sugar, fat are you going to have in this meal? then vitality, the vitality meter doesn't move, and people don't get the process very much. Mm. So it's, you know, in, in every arena, and, and as you make even, you know, it, it doesn't mean somebody has to do that whole thing, but as you make just small changes in different yeah. arenas, you know, you, you get out and you, and you walk, you, you exercise, you get your body moving. That leads to a new level of vitality. You know, instead of drinking water from the tap or instead of filling your, uh, your morning uh, mug with caffeine, sugar, and mucus-producing cream, if you drink a, uh, you know, a, a half a gallon of pure water, then you just made a major move in increasing vitality. And so, you know, everything that we do, for instance, in intensive is about, you know, okay, so here are the things that you can do. And each, you know, if you try to make a change in one arena and you like, I'm going to, I'm going to change a 90 point situation. I'm going to shift 90 points in this. The tendency is to bounce back. Whereas if you right. just make, you know, subtle changes, in each arena, exercise, forgiveness, breathing, uh, purity of water, food, food combining, each of those things contributes to building vitality. And into each new level of vitality, you get to new, do a new level of work. Awesome. And that's what it's all about. And they, it just announced in my ear that it's going to cut us off in about 10 seconds. So if, uh, if it's appropriate to continue this conversation tomorrow, it would be Awesome to do so. Otherwise, holding the space for everybody to have the best year yet of their eternal lives. Thanks for those questions. Really meaningful, really, I think, rounded out the hour for us. Blessings. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.